Good morning, church. Please uh, join me in the book of Acts as we continue where we left off last week. Last week we left off at chapter 11, verse 21. So we will attempt this morning to, uh, to finish the chapter, Acts chapter 11, from verse 22. Uh, by the providence of God, I believe that uh, this text is appropriate, uh, considering that we are having uh, membership intake this morning. And in many ways, this text shows us what it is that those who are coming a part of the church, those who are confessing Christ, what it is that they are and what it is that they are to do. So pay attention now to the reading of the word of the Lord. Chapter 11, verse 22. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. And when he came and he saw the grace of God, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. And for a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over the over the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. This is God's word. One of the challenges of gathering a group of people and organizing them into a group with a stated purpose is that the group hardly ever sticks to the original purpose of why it was formed. It is an evident issue throughout human history that when people organize, over time their purpose and their practice gets muddied and their reason for existence and operations change as times change as other things influence it. Uh, You think of political parties or big multinationals that have changed over time and changed leaders and changed purposes and changed things that they're doing because that's just how things happen. Over time, groups, while they come together for a particular purpose, over time that gets eroded by other things that enter. The challenge is that when people come together... They bring a myriad of personal interests, of motivations, and particular attitudes influenced by other things. And these can collide and cause all kinds of variance for the group and its stated purpose. Christianity, throughout history, sad to say, has not been entirely immune of this. 
The church has been influenced in history by the politics of the day, by the attitudes of the era, and by the whims of the people. We saw, of course, even at the beginning of Christianity that that the church was not immune to this. We saw last week that at the beginning in chapter 11, the church was being influenced by uh, the whims of Jewish nationalism. And that was affecting who the church was evangelizing to. And so in the midst of all of these influences that come, and all of those kinds of challenges that come to derail the purpose and the mission and how the mission is to be carried out, it is refreshing to hear the church's work and operation being stated once again in a simple way that anyone can understand. In the text in front of us this morning, we see Barnabas coming to the first Gentile church and in giving them a word of encouragement, a word of exhortation in very simple terms as to who they are and why are they to live and how are they to live that way. In many ways, we could even think about this this way. What would your word of encouragement be to a newly formed church? What would you say to them? What would you tell them to do? If you were to go somewhere and there's a new church that's been born, what was the top of your mind to tell them this is what you ought to be? What is, your, what is their mission? How are they to live? In the context of the changing world and all kinds of influences, what is the, what is the, the top line message to be sent to a new church? As Heritage Baptist this morning We would do well to pay attention to Barnabas here as he exhorts the church in Antioch as to what they ought to be. We pick the story up in verse 22 when the church in Jerusalem sends Barnabas to Antioch as its envoy to see the work that the Lord is doing in Antioch. Remember we left it last week where there were two groups preaching. One group was only preaching to the Jews. We saw this in verse 19. And the other group was, pre- was preaching to non-Jews in Antioch. And of course, we saw that the, gr- that the group that was preaching to non-Jews in verse 21 was the group that the Lord was working among, such that a new church is formed. Now, this church is growing, multiplying by the hand of the Lord without any authorized leadership of the church. This is not, of course, a new thing. We've seen this before. You'll remember in chapter 8 when Philip went to preach uh, to, the, to the Samaritans that he had preached and a church formed there. And so the church in Jerusalem sent Peter to go and verify the work that the Lord is doing. And so the church in Jerusalem is doing the same thing here. They, they're hearing of this work that is happening in Antioch. And once again, they're sending an envoy to go and verify and confirm the work that the Lord is doing. Now, there's a bit of suspense here, because remember where we just left the church in Jerusalem. In Jerusalem, there is controversy regarding Gentiles. There's controversy regarding how Gentiles are to be accepted into the church. And so certainly for us, it would be uncomfortable to hear that someone from the circumcision party that Peter had to deal with last week, It would be uncomfortable for us to hear that someone from that group of people is the one that is sent to go and 
look at this new work that has Gentiles in Antioch. The new work that the Lord is doing in Antioch is fragile. It requires the right people to steward it. Otherwise, the work will be thrown in confusion. And we know that what the circumcision party is capable of doing. You remember in the book of Galatians. That that's the whole point that Paul is dealing with in the book of Galatians. Paul had planted a church in Galatia through his hard work. And then he was not there for a while. And the circumcision party came to Galatia. And they threw into confusion everything that Paul had done there. The church unity was plundered in Galatia because of the circumcision party. And even the doctrine of justification was not left untouched. The doctrine of justification was messed up. Because of the views of the circumcision party. And so there is, a bit of, there is a bit of suspense here. If we know all of this, who is it that the church is going to send? And is it the right guy who's going to go there and handle with care this new work that is being done in Antioch? Well, Luke appears here as he writes this passage to be very intent on telling us that the right man is the one that the church sent by the grace and providence of the Lord. Luke wants to emphasize the excellence of character and special gifting of the man that the church sent. And that man, of course, is Barnabas. And you'll remember we've met Barnabas before. We met, we've seen him twice before in the book of Acts. The first time we heard of him was in chapter 4, where because of how he was encouraging to the brothers, His real name is actually Joseph, but they called him Barnabas because of how encouraging he was to the church. And we saw him again in chapter 9 when he was managing Saul of Tarsus and helping him to integrate into the church. So here it is. Here's what Luke says about him in verse 23 regarding this person that is being sent to go manage this new work. Verse 23. When he came... And saw the grace of God, he was glad. And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. The focus of these two verses is two things. What Barnabas said when he arrived at Antioch and why he said it. Two things, what he said when he arrived and why he said what he said. And we can summarize it this way. When Barnabas arrived at Antioch, he said a good word because he was a good man. See how glad he was when he saw that the grace of the Lord was there and how he exhorted them. In verse 24, why why was he glad and why did he exhort them in this way? Verse 24, because... He was a good man who was full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. The implication here is that he would not have been glad and he would not have exhorted them this way if he was not a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. I want us to think about these two things that Luke presses on our faces here this morning. A good word and a good man. Firstly, let's consider the good word. What is the good word that that Barnabas says? He exhorts them all to remain faithful to the Lord. How? 
with steadfast purpose. He he exhorts them to remain faithful to the Lord Jesus with steadfast purpose. Consider this good word. You and I need good words, do we not? We need good words of exhortation. This is not a rebuke. This is a good word of pointing us in the right direction. We need people to encourage us and give us strong, solid exhortations from the word of God. And this is a work that we are all ought to be doing. In Colossians chapter 3, Paul tells us that speak to each other, encourage one another, even as you sing, pointing each other in the right way. Who here cannot testify to this grace of God in the words of another person? The the work of exhorting, the work of giving a word of encouragement is a good work. It is an excellent work. When you consider all the wonderful gifts that the Lord gives to the church, do not look down on that person on the corner there who spends his days encouraging and giving good words. The person who is privately giving good words, exhorting, encouraging, uplifting, using the word of God. That is what Barnabas is. Barnabas is the son of encouragement. He is the epitome in the book of Acts of one who has the gift of encouragement. And when he comes here, he says this very excellent word. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. I want to tell you three reasons why I believe we need encouragement. Three reasons why we need to be given this kind of good word frequently. Number one, sin is blinding. Sin is blinding. You see, what sin does to our minds is that it distorts reality. It makes things that are not immediate, immediate. It makes things that are not important, important. It makes you feel as if if you do not act in this way, all is lost, when in fact nothing is lost. Sin is blinding. It messes with your thinking capacity. You need a good word. You need exhortation. You need someone to come and say, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Sin blinds. And how do you know that sin has blinded you when you start removing yourself from those who are going to come and give you the good word? Because what sin does not like is the, you know, the cleaning. You know that cleaning that, that, that happens when you come to church or when you speak to a brother or a sister and they just say a solid word. Sin does not like that. Your flesh does not like that. You know, I, I, don't, know, I don't know about you, but sometimes... My flesh gets the better of me when I'm driving in Johannesburg and somebody comes to my screen and starts squirting things on my screen. I'm like, no, I just washed the car. I don't need this. No, please, please don't do this. And then as the person comes, you're trying to wave them down. No, it's fine. And then they just start squirting. And then you know, should I just let you finish or not? But inside, I don't like what's happening. I don't like you cleaning my screen. That's exactly what sin is doing. As you are traveling towards a good Christian, 
As you're traveling towards a brother or sister whom you know is going to tell you the right thing to do, what do you think your flesh is saying inside of you? No, 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 no. Don't do it. Don't do it. Don't go listen. Don't listen. Don't pay attention. Sin does not like the cleaning. But we need the cleaning. Sin is blinding. And so invite good words. Pay attention to good words. Seek out good words. We need them. Number two. Number, the reason number one why we need a good word like Barnabas's word is because sin is blinding. Number two is the world is confusing. See, the world is out there and it is terribly confusing. The world mixes good and evil in the same sentence. In the same sentence. And so you're like, I'm with you, but I'm not. I'm not sure what it is that, is this the right way or isn't, isn't it? One person comes and says a fascinating, wonderful, exciting argument. And you think, yeah, I can get behind that. And then another comes and questions him. And then you're at sea. You don't know which way to go. You need a good word from the word of the Lord to clear out the fog. In a world where people are busy trying to choose sides. Go this way, go that way, follow this man, follow that person. You and I need someone who's going to come to us and say, hey, wake up. Follow the Lord Jesus. Remain faithful to him with steadfast purpose. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to that word. Stop listening to all these unbelievers and all these people with their theories trying to tell you and tell you how, what you should be and how you should be acting. Listen to what Jesus says. Remain faithful to him with steadfast purpose. We need a good word because the world is confusing. Who here has not been confused when it sounds like it's good, but it isn't? Or how, who here has not, over time, something that you held on to and you thought, this, was, this is excellent. You find out later, it's such nonsense. The Word of God assumes it to be nonsense. But you didn't know. That's why we need a good word. We need a good word. That's the second reason why we need a good word. The third reason why we need a good word is because the road is long. The road is long. To follow the Lord Jesus Christ to completion until He calls you home or He returns, that's a long journey. And so every now and again as your flesh gets weak, every now and again as you're, you're tempted to rest where you shouldn't, the word, the, it is useful to get a good word. Hey brother, hey sister, remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. We need a good word. So what does it mean to be faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose? Steadfastness is the quality by which we are to do the thing. The thing is to remain faithful to the Lord. So the first, the key thing for us to understand is that we are to remain faithful to Him. We are as those who are betrothed to one husband and our hearts, minds, our wills, Everything about us must be revolving around Him. And this is to be seen in our actions, in the world, in private, and in the church. When we are called here to remain faithful to the Lord, what the call is, is to love Jesus above all else. But He adds with steadfast purpose because there's going to be so many obstacles to that. Why must he say with steadfast purpose? Why doesn't he say with a relaxed purpose? With an easy purpose, with a chilled purpose. Chill, relax. Just follow the Lord Jesus. 
in, in a calm way. Don't, don't, don't stress about it. Why does he say with a steadfast purpose? It's because there's going to be waves, isn't there? There's going to be trial on the one end. So as he comes to these believers, they've just, there's, this church was planted because believers were scattered because of the persecution of Stephen. So there's going to be trials of all kinds. It's not just going to be trials coming from the world like persecution. There's going to be internal trials as well. It's going to be just our own fallenness and our own bodies not working the way that they should. And so he's telling them, regardless of all the happenings, remain faithful with steadfast purpose. He's coming here, and in one sense, he's saying to them, the Lord Jesus taught about four soils that receive the word. You have to be the fourth one. Do you remember those four soils that the Lord Jesus spoke about? Everybody received the word with joy. Yes, exciting. This is a good word. This is, we love, we, this Christ, this resurrection of the dead, it all sounds good. Following Jesus really sounds like, he sounds like he's an amazing guy. I'd like to follow him. Okay. What about trials? One of the soils, when the trials come, they shipwreck. They leave. They don't want to stay. Okay. What about riches and happiness? What about times of ease? When there's plenty and you have enough to eat. What about then? Jesus tells us that one of the soils, because of how wonderful riches and plenty are, they leave. The enemies are all over the place. What we need is to remain steadfast and so that we can be that final fruit that produces 20, 30, 40 fold. That is what it means to remain steadfast uh, to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. But here in the book of Acts, one theme that is really clear, that usually comes up often and often again, is that when how are we to see the faithfulness of the believers is how they act towards other believers. That's what we've seen so far, and that's going to be, that's a theme that runs throughout the book of Acts. You know that someone is faithful to the Lord by how they treat other Christians. And so in verse 27, if you just jump to verse 27, we see an example of the church in Antioch applying what, Luke, what Barnabas has just said. Look at verse 27. Now in those days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and indicated by the Spirit that a great famine was about to come over the whole inhabitant earth. And so from the disciples, according to their ability to give, each one of them determined to send aid to support the brothers who lived in Judea, which they also did, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. It is interesting that the first action of this church in Antioch that we hear about, the very first action that they perform together as a collective group, is that they sent aid to the church in Jerusalem, when they heard that they were going to lack because of what's going to come. See, prophet says there's going to be a famine. And so this church says, let's, whatever we have, let's pull it together to ensure that our brothers and sisters in Judea do not lack. What does it look like to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose in one sense is, how are you treating other believers who are in need? That's the question that is really being asked about this. How are you treating other believers, period? 
How you act around other believers, how you interact with them. Do you see them as tools to be used or as people that you are to bless? Just like Barnabas who had this thought in his mind. He is a son of encouragement, one who builds Christians up. Imagine this guy's name, Barnabas. His name is about how he influences the church. That's his name. He encourages. If I meet with Barnabas, I know I'm going to leave with a word of exhortation. I'm going to be encouraged. I'm going to love Jesus more. I'm going to be helped out of my whatever stupor that's in my mind. I'm going to be helped. That is what it is in one sense. We can, of course, if we were to just unpack, remain faithful, we would take it in all kinds of ways. We talk about idolatry. We talk about all kinds of things. But just in this text, primarily the thing that comes up is, what do you do with other believers? Let me encourage you, saints, to think accurately about God's people and to act accurately with regards to God's people. To love them, to care for them, to give them a good word. When you shy away from giving a good word to somebody who needs it, you're not loving them. You're not loving them. When you shy away from... When you act above needing a good word from somebody, you're not loving. You're not acting in line. When you act like you're, you're fine, you don't need any kind of exhortation. How we act with regards to other believers shows us whether or not we are faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, that's the first thing that I want us to look at is the good word. Remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. Now, let's look at the second thing. A good man that Luke focuses on here. This good word that we need must come from good men and good women. And this is what Luke says in verse 24. He said this good word because he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. Now, throughout the book of Acts, this is, I find this to be quite something. Throughout the book of Acts, no one else is called a good man, which is a very strong phrase. No one else is called a good man by Luke except Barnabas. For Luke to pause here... And tell us that Barnabas was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith, is explaining to us that Barnabas is not a normal caliber. He's, an ex he's of excellent character. He is a holy man, close to the Lord, who's full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And it is interesting to think about this when it comes to Barnabas, because Luke loves talking about Barnabas in contrast to others. Luke doesn't just talk about Barnabas on his own. Three times now we heard about Luke, and each time it's in contrast to other Christians. So you'll remember, when we first heard about Barnabas in, in, in Acts chapter 4, he was called a son of encouragement that the church loved, because what did he do? He gave all that he had so that it can be distributed to those who love the Lord. But then you remember who he was contrasted with right at the beginning of chapter 5. Who, who was it that wanted to be like Barnabas and get the same praise from the church that Barnabas received? Ananias. Do you remember Ananias and Sapphira? Who, because chasing the praise that Barnabas received without actually having the heart that Barnabas had, 
They then, him and his wife, Ananas and Sapphira, then did that whole scheme to try and lie to the church and make it seem as though they are as generous as Barnabas was. The second time we heard about Barnabas was in chapter 9, when the entire church was feeling rather uncomfortable about Barnabas, about Saul, and not knowing what to do with him, because admittedly, Saul was a guy who was charging the church, killing the believers. He was in charge of Stephen's death. And so they were all not sure what to do with him. And then Barnabas, we're told, Barnabas comes and he takes Saul under his wing and he advocates for him in front of the church. While others were standing back, the apostles standing back, it appears, Barnabas took an active role in advocating for the work of the Lord in Saul's life. And now here again, Barnabas and his excellence is being praised, not in a vacuum, but over and against the circumcision party. If one of the circumcision party had come here, he would have not have been glad because there's Jews and Gentiles mixing, eating together. He would have not have been glad because he would have been filled with this Jewish nationalism that we explored and saw last week. But Barnabas is in contrast to that. Barnabas comes and he is an excellent man. The the emphasis on on Barnabas' goodness is in direct contrast to those men with their disjointed view of the goal and mission of the church. I want us to think about the, the concept of being a good man full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And the way for us to see it is we see it in what, is, in what he did. He was glad when he came and saw the work and he gave them a good word. So now think with me. What is it that causes people to not be glad when they see the work of the Lord happening? When you've heard, when you've seen the work of the Lord happening, perhaps in another church or in another place, what is it that causes people to not rejoice at that? Whatever that is, that is the, at the root of a person not being a good, a good man and full of the Holy Spirit. When a person creates groups and sees competition between believers... And not being glad that the Lord is doing his work, taking people from darkness to light. Then you know that there's something is terribly wrong and it needs to be fixed. Paul, of course, talks about this. That there are some who even preach the gospel. It tells us about them in Philippians, right? It says there are some who preach the gospel out of what? Out of envy and competition with him. So there were people in Paul's day who were actually standing in front of crowds... Preaching the gospel, not motivated by love and good works, but motivated by competition with Paul. Yes, look at the crowd that I've gathered. Paul has never seen a crowd this big. You see a problem? Even when we, you and I do that, you know, we can do that about our churches. It doesn't just have to be the one who's preaching. We can do that about our churches. Well, you know, you know our church is, you know, it's very traditional. I mean, have you seen our windows? You know, our church, you know, we, you know, we've got, you know, you know, we, we, we've got the man, you know, we, 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 we've got the man, you know, I know you have a pastor, but have you seen my pastor? 
That kind of competition between believers shows when you're not rejoicing at the work of the Lord, wherever you find the work of the Lord, shows that something is wrong. Full of the Holy Spirit means that you're being led by the Spirit. That you understand and you're thinking God's thoughts after Him. That you are in tune. You're seeing that the Spirit is doing work in accordance with His Word. And your emotions and your will and your affections are captured to that. Whatever the Lord does, I'm going to rejoice at it. Second thing. What causes people to not give a good word? So he did two things, right? He rejoiced and then he gave a good word. What causes people to not give a good word? What could cause a person to not exhort another believer who needs it? Of course, here, there's not any kind of sin in their lives, right? There's nothing happening here. He's just arriving, assessing the work, and he says, Wow, this is wonderful. The Lord is doing this. Now let me exhort you to go in the right way. But what would cause a person to not want to see other Christians flourish? What would cause a person to not look at what God is doing wherever he is and and say, oh, let me pray and trust the Lord. Let me say something or whatever it is. Let me pray even in just private such that you people might flourish and remain faithful. Whatever that is that would cause a person to do that, it means that that person is not good in the sense that that Luke is saying here. Something is wrong. Something must be fixed. Let me exhort you. Church, to seek to be like Barnabas, to seek the Spirit of God in His Word by applying and walking in the manner that He says. To be full of the Spirit is nothing weird or unattainable. It is simply to walk and being led by Him, to understand what it is that He says and to think His thoughts after Him. Let me encourage you to to remove from your mind the mind of the world and replace it with the mind of Christ. To attempt in all situations to constantly have the mind of Christ as the controlling factor. Don't think like the world tells you to think. Don't think in terms of categories that the world has given you. The world wants to categorize people in all kinds of different ways. You are not to do that. Your task is to think the mind of Christ. If somebody is in sin, you tell them they're in sin and pray that the Lord removes them from it. If someone is doing a good work and the Lord is blessing it, you encourage them in it. You don't ask all these other categorical questions that people tell you to ask. Where does this person come from? What is their privilege? What is this? What is that? Bunch of nonsense. Focus on what it is that the Lord is thinking. The work of the Lord is happening. What is happening in your life? How can I encourage you to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose? Now, because of Barnabas' efforts and his work, a great many people are added to the Lord. And so Barnabas realizes that this work needs more hands. And he doesn't go back to Jerusalem, interestingly, He doesn't go back to Jerusalem to say, can I get someone to come and help me here because this work is big. But rather, where does he go? He goes to Tarsus to find Saul. And you remember, of course, he's the one who advocated for Saul. He's the one who understood and saw that the Lord had called Saul to to go do the work of the Gentiles. 
He believed it when Ananias came and gave a report and said, Saul has been given the ministry to the Gentiles. And so when Barnabas is here with a bunch of Gentiles, he says, Ah, let me go get the one that the Lord has called to do the work among the Gentiles. So verse 25. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year, they met with the church and taught a great many people. Now, with the work of Barnabas and Saul together, the church is thriving to such a degree that they are having an impact in the culture and the culture around them, because seeing them, trying to understand them, they give them a label. And what is that label? Christians. This is the first time that this label, Christian, comes to use. It comes to use here in Antioch. Now, this label that the community around them calls them, because it's not them they call themselves this, it's the community around them that call them Christians. This label is very significant, friends. I'll give you a few reasons why this label is significant. Number one, it is significant because they are no longer considered a subset of Judaism. This label shows that they are no longer considered to be a group within Judaism, which is how the church in Jerusalem is currently operating. Church in Jerusalem is currently operating as part of Judaism. They are not something separate from Judaism, but they are a particular sect within Judaism. Here in Antioch, the church is seen and considered to be their own thing. A group that has both Jews and Gentiles that they have never seen before. Jews and Gentiles, if they interacted before, because of the synagogue laws, they would have not have interacted in the way that these guys are interacting. Eating together, shaking hands, loving one another in this rich way. They would have never seen that, and so they call them a different name. Second, it is significant the name that they are called. The name that they are called is Christianos. This name takes the title of Christ, that's Jesus Christ, takes the title of Christ and adds to it the suffix Janos, which is usually given to people who are followers or under the person whose name is the prefix. So for those who are under the kingship of Herod, called Herodians, those who, who are following the kingship of Herod, they're called at the time Herodians. Those who are under Caesar Augustus and they are for the leadership, they follow the leadership of Caesar Augustus are called Augustinians at this time. And so the culture around them in trying to figure out what are we going to call these people and they listen to what these people are saying all the time and how these people are talking, they call them Christians after Christ. This group of people are known for exactly what they ought to be. They are known as those who are after this man, Christ, who follow him, who speak all the time about this Christ. Uh, in fact, this term, this, um, this suffix, adding a suffix, Janus, to, to a particular name, was actually most common with regards to Roman soldiers. So if uh, soldiers had a captain, and the captain's name was Cornelius, then those soldiers would march. When they're marching, they would be chanting, Cornelian, 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 saying that we follow our captain, 
Cornelius. So this is, there is, this is a, a wonderful term in one sense when you look at it that way. That these people are now called those who chant Christ. Now there is evidence of course that when the world and the culture around them is calling them Christians. It's not flattering them. Because you remember in the Roman mind and the Hellenistic culture that they're in. What happened to Christ? In their mind Christ was crucified. Christ was killed. And so they are not really flattering them when they say this. In the minds of the culture, these people are chanting and following a dead guy. And this term, Christian, which you and I use pretty much verbosely today, um, it actually appears only three times in the entire New Testament. This is the first time that the word Christian appears. The second time it appears is in Acts 26, when Paul is preaching to King Agrippa. And then, and then King Agrippa says, Do you honestly think that in such a short time you're going to convince me to be a Christian? Because in his mind, he's mocking him. Christian is not flattering. And the only other time that this term comes up in the Bible is in 1 Peter chapter 4, where Peter is talking to suffering Christians in Asia Minor. He says to them, do not suffer as a wrongdoer, but rather suffer as a Christian. Meaning that part of the significance of this term is that in the culture, it was a term of derision. It is a cross, a, a cross on the back of their heads. When you are following this guy, you are following someone that everybody is looking down on because they believe that he is dead and so they will make you suffer for it. This is a term of, belittle, a term of belittlement, a term that is not praise. In fact, the disciples did not use this term for themselves for a long time until we start seeing this term Christian being used by Ignatius of Antioch a few decades after the events of Acts. Now, even though the term is not used much by the church, I believe Christian is exactly what they are. Followers of Jesus. They are not a subset within a particular group. This is not a religion that is tied to other certain groupings or certain ideologies or certain ways of thinking. It's not a group from a particular place. These are not the Nazarenes. These are Christians. They're not, a, they're not from a particular place. These are people who follow their captain who is called Christ. In three ways is this term Christian appropriate. It is appropriate because Jesus is the founder of the religion. They are not just disciples. While the word disciple is good... But they're not just disciples. They're disciples of who? Christ. This is not just a spiritual people. You know how everybody just loves talking about spirituality in, va in vague terms. You know, I'm, I'm a spiritual. I believe in spirituality, you know, being in touch with the universe. No, these people are not spiritual people. These people are people whose lives are dictated to by Jesus. Christ's words to them are supreme, preeminent, and sustaining. For them, he is the constitution and the guidebook. It is in him that this group exists. For this group, they are truly Christians because Christ is all to them. They're Jews and Gentiles in one group, but it doesn't matter. What matters is Christ. His life, his words, his death, his resurrection. This must be said of us, saints. This must be said of us. What matters to us? What is the creed? 
Have we seen what this group saw in Jesus? That he is altogether excellent. That his words give life. We just sang. Who else can we go to? His words give life. That when he speaks, he speaks with a strength that no one has ever known. That is the very righteousness that comes out of him changes and cleanses. He could never be contaminated. This is what we must look at him and see this. And then take the label to ourselves. And not just as a label to ourselves, but as a way we live. We are Christians. After him. You can call me all these other things. But when, you, when you're talking and thinking about who I am, I am a Christian. A follower of that man, Jesus Christ. The second reason why this term is appropriate is the fact that it is Christian. Referring to Jesus' end times title. These people are not the followers of a dead Jewish philosopher or zealot, contrary to popular belief at the time. Rather, they are followers of the Christ, the anointed one, the king of the Jews, and indeed the Lord of the earth. These people do not follow one man among many. People can call themselves after men all the time, right? We follow this guy, we follow this guy's economic policies, we follow this guy's political leadership, we follow this guy's theological musings, we follow this guy and follow that guy. But these people don't follow one man among many, they follow the man. You see, Christian, contrary to what the world around them was thinking, Christian is an elevated term. It is a term of triumph that here we have found the conqueror of the world. Who is the one that is given the scroll and the title deed to the whole universe in Revelation? It is the Christ, the Messiah. This is not anybody. This is the Christ, the anointed one, the one who is to rule the world forever and ever. Now, let me say this to you if you're here today visiting for this or that other reason. I want you to know very clearly that Jesus is not one among many. He is the one. When we are telling you, become a Christian, follow this one. We're not saying follow one, choose him because maybe he can organize something for you. And maybe he can give you a better life than the others. That maybe you can choose him, try him for a time. You've tried all the others, now try this one. No. We're saying there's only one that exists, the Christ, the Messiah. And you are to repent, turn away from everything and bow down for the forgiveness of your sins. And life everlasting in this one. This term Christian is rich because it is an end time triumph. We are the followers of the king of all eternity. And finally... This term is appropriate because this religion is about the actions of the Christ, not about their actions. See, many groups are called names based on what they are like and what they do. So some groups are called the zealots because they're always hot and heavy. They just want stuff to happen. They want action. They're revolutionaries. You know, they've got, they want, they want action all the time. They're revolutionaries. And so they're called the zealots. And other groups are called the happy ones. You know, the chilled ones. The ones who are just, hey man, just be happy. People look at them and say, well, these are the happy ones. Let's call them the happy ones. That's how the term hippie came about. Because everybody was just, hey man, let's just 
just relax and have fun with it. And so then they were called hippies. You see, this term is appropriate because it's not about them. It's not about them and what they do, describing what they do. This term is appropriate because it is describing who they follow. They take their name from the one that they follow. It is a religion about Christ and what he has achieved. All the other terms that Christians call themselves are good, wonderful, brothers, disciples, saints. And all of these terms have their place. But I believe in the providence of God. One of the reasons the the term Christian has endured more than the other terms is because it places its emphasis on Christ and his work. And that is fitting. In closing, I'll say this. Those of you who have taken on this name unto yourselves, remember the name. It's in the name. When you're weak and failing, struggling with your sin, it's in the name. Christ. When you've conquered and you felt like you've worked, you've done well and you've, you've solved, you know, you had a really good spiritual day. Always remember, it's in the name. Christian, that's what you are. Not you again. Not me again. Christian. That's the name. And those of you who are on the outside who have not taken this name, who have not bowed down to him, let me tell you strongly, Christ is worth it. Yes, he will call you to leave everything behind, to come to him, but there is no better person. There is no one else to follow except Jesus and him crucified and resurrected. Now you can choose. Now you might think that you're not following anyone. I'm an independent thinker. I'm not taking anybody else's name on me. I'm an independent thinker. I think my own way. But you realize that even saying that shows you that you're following somebody else's thoughts. Where does the thinking, I'm an independent thinker, comes from? I can show you. It comes from certain particular line of thought. So you, no, one's, no one's actually ever truly independent as they think they are. The one to follow is the one who conquered death. The one who offers you life. And not just any kind of life. Full life. And life eternal. In his name, Amen. Let's pray. We are Christians, O oh Lord, and we take this name because of what you have done for us, because of your excellence and grace, because of the power of your character. We are Christians. And we ask, Lord, that you continue to make more Christians. Invade countries and make Christians. Invade families and make more Christians. Invade homes. Invade university campuses. Invade companies, multinationals. Everywhere where there are people breathing, we pray, invade and make more people who follow you. Because you are worth it. And you are the only excellent one. Amen.